When people lose or when they fail, there's always a temptation to say, oh, well, you know, it was unwinnable. It wasn't unwinnable. It was absolutely winnable. We just screwed it up and we have lost. Today's podcast is a lengthy one, but that's because it's a special episode and a conversation you would not want to miss. Organized in collaboration with the Brentes Foundation, Daily Maverick, and the Friedrich Norman Foundation, today's episode looks at Afghanistan after the worst withdrawal. Between 2001 and 2019, 2 million men and women from abroad served in Afghanistan, and more than $2 trillion was expended, an extraordinary once-in-a-generation commitment of resources to a country. The Western withdrawal from Afghanistan, set to be complete by September 11, 2021, has gone hand-in-hand hand with a narrative of defeat. Repeated so often, it's in danger of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, one damaging to Western moral authority and the value of its alliance. The webinar today offers insight, nuance, and reflections on how Afghanistan was handled and what that means for where it is today. Rory Stewart said, and I quote, my view is that the blame lies squarely with the United States and its allies for withdrawing its support in reckless fashion. That's quite a statement. As I said, today's episode is definitely a conversation you would not want to miss. This chat features Dr. Greg Mills, Executive Director of the Brentis Foundation, in conversation with Rory Stewart, former UK Secretary of State for International Development and Yale University Fellow, and Dr. David Kilcullen, author, strategist, counterinsurgency expert, and former advisor to Secretary Condoleezza Rice and General David Petraeus, as they discuss what the future might hold for the people of Afghanistan. Let's tune in. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Daily Maverick Brentos Foundation seminar on what is going to happen in Afghanistan. I know there has been a tremendous uh, response to this seminar, and uh, we have uh, over 3,000 people signed up to it. Uh, uh, not because of me, I'm sure, but because of our two very distinguished guests who I'll introduce in a moment. My name is Greg Mills. I head the Brenthurst Foundation, which is based in Johannesburg in South Africa. My connection with Afghanistan is that I spent uh, four assignments there as an advisor to the commander, both, both based uh, alternatively in, in Kabul and in uh, Kandahar. Uh, and then I recently returned from two uh, visits there this year, uh, where I was completing a book uh, which is about to be published called Expensive Poverty, which is about the follies of international aid. And you can probably get the drift of the book from the title. But I'll be just chipping in every now and again with the occasional comment, but mainly keeping the conversation going. Uh, um, and the gaining the insights of our two very distinguished guests. Before I introduce them, uh, let me say thanks to our partners, uh, The Daily Maverick, Africa's largest uh, uh, digital publication, and uh, they too would like to acknowledge the support of the Friedrich Naumann Stifting, uh, who have uh, assisted in the setting up of these seminars. Um, let me first introduce Rory Stewart. I met Rory in Kabul. I met Dave Kilcullen through Afghanistan, but I met Rory in Kabul uh, in his role in establishing the Turquoise Mountain Foundation. It's, it's often said of people that they're a scholar, and sometimes you hear the term soldier scholar. Uh, um, and sometimes you even hear, hear the term uh, fairly uncommonly of soldier scholar author. Uh, and in these two gentlemen, we have 
uh, combined elements of, of expertise and experience, which is quite remarkable. Uh, Rory, who very graciously stepped in at the last moment uh, for Hamdullah Mohib, the uh, former, I think it would be correct to say, National Security Advisor of the Islamic uh, Republic of Afghanistan. Um, he is an academic, he's a diplomat, he's an explorer, he's an author, he's a soldier, and he's been a politician. And he's now an academic again uh, back at uh, Yale University. He's produced a number of excellent books, uh, The Places in Between, uh, which was about a long walk, which included a walk across Afghanistan, um, uh, the, the marches, uh, and then Occupational Hazards, which was also known as the Prince, Prince, Prince of the Marshes. Uh, he was Secretary of State for International Development, but, uh, most recently uh, in the United Kingdom government. Uh, he was an MP between 2010 and 2019. He served as the Chairman of the um, Defence Select Committee. He was Minister of State for Africa. He was Minister of State for Prisons, uh, uh, perhaps it's not reflecting that he did go to Oxford, uh, but he did serve for time as Minister of State for Prisons. He also served as Director of Harvard's Car Center between 2008 and 2010. And of course, most of you will know his name probably because he served or stood as a candidate uh, to be Prime Minister in the most recent election uh, of the UK Prime Minister. Um, David Kilcullen uh, is an Australian and American citizen. Uh, he is too an author, a soldier, a strategist, a counterinsurgency specialist and a diplomat. He served as an advisor to uh, Secretary of State Condi Rice and David Petraeus uh, um, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Uh, he's been a fellow at a number of distinguished international institutions. Um, and he's written uh, at least five books that I know of, David, uh, including, uh, most famously, The Accidental Guerrilla. Um, he retired from the Australian Army uh, as a colonel in 2005, and since then he's branched out into the academic world. Um, I'll come back to David in a moment, but I want to ask the first question of Rory. Uh, um, I think it was John F. Kennedy who said uh, that victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. And this was said shortly after the Bay of Pigs. Why, Rory, did Afghanistan collapse so quickly? And to what extent must the blame be shared between the Afghans and the West in terms of what happened? Well, thank you, Greg. And firstly, let me just check that you can hear me clearly and everything is, is working fine. Great. Um, so, difficult question. Obviously, President Biden is trying to put the blame squarely on Afghans in his press conference yesterday. He put a lot of focus on the fact that he said the Afghan army had collapsed and the Afghan leadership had fled the country. Um, my view is that really the blame lies squarely with the United States and its allies by withdrawing its support in a reckless fashion. Um, I think it's important to understand, firstly, something that I think British and American, certainly citizens, have struggled maybe to understand, which is that combat operations largely ceased in 2014. Since then, and that's quite a long time. For the last seven years, we've had a relatively light troop presence, mainly in air bases, relying on providing air support and command and control structures, the Afghans, and taking very few casualties. It's quite difficult to get the exact figures, but it, it appears that in the period from February 2020 until today, there have been no U.S. casualties in Afghanistan, and there have been 
no British casualties in Afghanistan hostile action for many years now. So, and by January this year, we were down to 2,500 soldiers. This was a small, eminently sustainable presence, low risk, low cost. And President Biden chose to pull it out. He wasn't forced to pull it out. He's beginning to suggest now that he was under pressure from the Taliban and that if he'd stayed, he would have had to ramp up to tens of thousands of troops and get himself in the middle of the civil war. There's no evidence of that at all. There's no evidence that this force was under significant pressure from the Taliban at all, as indeed the casualty rate suggests. And if they'd been under significant pressure, one would expect there would have been more casualties. Um, and the pullout basically broke the Afghan army. It broke it in two ways. It broke its technical capacity by effectively removing its air force. That was because the US were flying a lot of the air operations and riding a lot of them under control, but also because 16,000 US contractors were keeping the Afghan planes and helicopters in the Afghan Air Force in the air, and they were removed. One of the strange things about the modern world is we sell these very high technology platforms to other armies, and we sell them with teams of contractors who maintain them and operate them. And the US didn't just pull out its own planes and soldiers, it pulled out the contractors that maintained the Afghan Air Force, uh, which rendered Afghan attack helicopters into essentially expensive pieces of scrap metal overnight. But perhaps the most devastating impact of it was to the morale of the Afghan military itself, more than the capacity. The US pulled out of Bagram Air Base in the middle of the night and literally didn't tell their Afghan colleagues and fellow soldiers what they were doing. So the Afghan commander woke up in the morning to find the Americans literally gone. Uh, and that broke the system. And what we really saw was very similar to what happened around Mosul in 2014, when a few hundred ISIS fighters routed three divisions of the Iraqi army. It's remarkable what a relatively light force, and the Taliban was a relatively light force, can do against the military that feels totally demoralized, in many cases hadn't been paid, had lost all its air support, and felt that nobody was coming in to get them. So this collapse, this rapid collapse, is very much the fault of President Biden for pulling those troops out, and indeed for the other NATO countries for going along with it and not providing an alternative. Uh, thank you very much, Rory. I'll come back to the issue about the failure of politics in a moment. But Dave Kilcullen, you um, famously or infamously uh, described the invasion of Iraq as something very stupid. I think it was an Australian term that you used. Um, was the invasion of Afghanistan the same as the invasion of Iraq? Uh, and is that, in a sense, the reason for the failure, uh, the the the, the failure to conceptualize the operation right at the very beginning in the correct manner? That's a great question, Greg, and, and you know, thanks for having me. You mentioned I've been a fellow of um, numerous distinguished institutions. I'm most proud of being an associate of the Brenthouse Foundation, so I'm very happy to be part of this um, activity. To answer your question, look, I think they are very different cases. Uh, the invasion of Afghanistan had overwhelming international support, uh, you know, ranging from NATO declaring an Article 5 and supporting the US to the French major, you know, daily newspaper saying we are all Americans now after 9-11. Uh, the invasion itself, I think, was justified and was carried out extraordinarily effectively right up until about the 7th of December 2001 when Kandahar, the last Taliban stronghold, fell 
and the Taliban negotiated a surrender deal. Uh, ironically, many of the same people involved now in negotiating the current deal with Hamid Karzai were also negotiating with Hamid Karzai 20 years ago. Uh, and Hamid Karzai at the time suggested we need to get these guys in. We need to have a peace discussion. We need to figure out a way to end the conflict. And the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of <clears throat> Defense at the time, Donald Rumsfeld, said, "No, these people are terrorists. We are not going to negotiate with terrorists." We never had a peace conference with uh, the Taliban after their defeat, and they melted away and reformed themselves in Pakistan by about 2003. So it's as if we had, you know, the Versailles Peace Treaty and didn't even bother inviting the Germans. You know, um, so of course there was no basis for sustainable peace. And that was a, mis a self-inflicted mistake. But it was a, a mistake at the end of a justified military action that was overwhelmingly supported by the international community. Iraq was entirely different. We decided on, as it turned out, wrong evidence to uh, go and invade Iraq. But even if the evidence had been correct, we were in the middle of another war in Afghanistan, and we dropped things, turned away and went to Iraq, and I think a lot of what's happened in Afghanistan since has reflected the fact that when things did start to go bad in Afghanistan, we were so overcommitted in Iraq that we were not able to react and do anything about it for a number of years. Uh, so I think they're very different cases. But I did describe, I don't believe I used the F word on the record, uh, but I did describe uh, the invasion of Iraq as stupid. Um, I think that we will go down in history with Afghanistan as the evacuation from Afghanistan being stupid. Um, and, uh, you know, we can talk about whether it was indeed the right decision to make. And I think Rory has been very eloquent on that. But let's assume for the sake of argument that you could make a case, you know, that it, it was the right call to leave. We must be hanging our heads in shame at the way in which it was done, right? The manner of departure. Even if you decide that you are going to leave, uh, th there's no call for what's you know, an absolute humanitarian disaster that's happening on the ground right now. Thank you, David. I'll, I'll come straight back to you and then and then to Rory. Um, uh, American strategy evolved over time with regard to Afghanistan. It went in as a quote-unquote operation for regime change, removing the Taliban because they gave support to al-Qaeda. Um, and then it morphed into nation building, of course, something that Donald Rumsfeld was dead set against uh, at the time. And, and slowly the mission gained all sorts of uh, appendages, as it were, in, both in terms of strategy, but in terms of, of, of things to do. And you saw the development of provincial reconstruction teams, among other uh, aspects of the, the development and the evolution of the strategy across Afghanistan. Um, one of the, the responses, which is very common over the last week uh, in perusing blogs and comment, the commentariat on Afghanistan is this is a country uh, which always ejects its invaders. It can never be governed. It's not really a country at all. These are very common themes. Do you think that nation building uh, is a flawed premise by outsiders? Or could this have gone differently if a different approach was adopted? David? It could have gone differently if a different approach was adopted. I'll give you a specific example in a minute. But I just want to pick up this question, and I know you're not suggesting it's true, but I hear people who've never been to Afghanistan or even opened a book about Afghanistan or know any Afghans frequently saying 
Afghanistan's not a real country. It's not governable. It has never been governable. That's just absolutely untrue. Um, from the 1880s through the 1970s, it was a unified state, but it was one that functioned in a different way from a Western state. It had people had different expectations of their government, and uh, it functioned in a in a different fashion. What we did was try to drop a European template over that society. But even by the time that we got there in the early 2000s, it had been at war for nearly 40 years at that point. So it was a devastated country that had suffered through Russian invasion, uh, the insurgency against the Soviets, the civil war was completely destroyed after five years of Taliban rule. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think we, we need to understand that th there is a real Afghanistan uh, and th there's a real nation there and not be become victims of sort of um, what you might call Taliban propaganda, right? Like you may as well let us have it because anything's better than nothing. Um, to, to the point of could we have done it differently? There are many military things we could have done differently and I, I'm happy to talk about those, but I think your question was more about development. When we went into Afghanistan, the decision was made to do what I would describe as a red first strategy with aid. We picked the most dangerous, most destabilized parts of the country, and we focused our efforts on that. Imagine how different it would have been if we'd done a green first strategy and focused on the stable parts, got them functioning, um, worked with our allies, and then expanded like, a, like an oil spot into the areas that were unstable. I and many other people, I think Rory as well, suggested this. Ashraf Ghani, when he worked for the World Bank, was fully aware of this argument. The aid agencies were aware of it, but uh, people wanted to demonstrate progress, I don't know, a pro propaganda effect for their, their publics rather than working with the Afghans who were telling us what was needed to, um, to build things out. So I think it could have been very different. When people lose or when they fail, there's always a temptation to say, oh, well, you know, it was unwinnable. It wasn't unwinnable. It was absolutely winnable. We just screwed it up and we have lost. And Rory, I'm sure you'll pick up on some of those things. And I just to briefly say, I had a stand-up argument uh, in 2006 with a um, uh, American colonel in Bag Bagram Air Force Base uh, over where to spend development money. And he was insistent on spending it in the areas where there was the greatest insecurity. And I eventually, out of frustration, said to him, would you plant a tree on Mars? And he said, eventually after looking at me as if I'd uh, um, you know, been drinking the wrong tea, he said, uh, no, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, reinforce success, you know, go where there is success, make that effect demonstrable across the entire country. But there's this idea that if you spent and sprayed enough money um, that it would then have uh, a positive development impact was uh, let's say naive at best, but that's not what this discussion is about. Rory, you can comment on, on the last question and what David said, but I also want you to comment if you can on, on this concept of political failure. I mean, war is the failure of politics. Um, it's the failure of political compacts, political exchange, and thus the solution is about, is a political solution. Do you think that, that this wasn't, was, why wasn't this addressed uh, earlier enough on in terms of building a, a, a relationship with the Taliban, including them in government, when they could have very easily done this in the early 2000s, it became more difficult as the Taliban became resurgent. Why was there this political uh, blinkeredness, if I could term it, 
with regard to the Taliban and and what was the what has been the nat- nature of the political failure in the West with regard to to Afghanistan? Why did the West feel and you've served in the highest levels of government? Why did the West feel this urge to get out when, as you've pointed out already, they had so little in there in terms of of risk to treasure now? Um, I mean, it, the whole thing is bewildering and heartbreaking, but it's partly the way in which things are framed for publics. I mean, looking from the outside, it, it's completely insane. And if you look at it on the surface, we were saying about Afghanistan 15 years ago, Afghanistan is one of the most important strategic locations in the world. It's an existential threat to global security. It justifies spending $100 billion a year, 100,000 troops. A lot of the most talented, impressive diplomats, soldiers, researchers in the world were drawn into Afghanistan. And now we find ourselves today basically saying it doesn't matter at all. I mean, essentially, Biden's view is totally irrelevant. Can't even be bothered to keep 2,500 soldiers there. We'll just leave it to its own devices. Now, if you were looking at this from Mars, it makes zero sense that the very same politicians who were saying this place was unbelievably important and it was worth risking thousands of lives suddenly then decide it doesn't matter at all. But it is something in the nature of the way that democratic politics works that you create these very clear black and white structures. So so what I'm, I'm getting to this question around why we can negotiate with the Taliban and David's uh, issue around what happened at the end of 2001 and Biden saying we don't negotiate with terrorists. And I was reminded about it yesterday. I was called by a member of parliament who said to me, Rory, I remember having a stand-up row with you six years ago when you said we should be negotiating with the Taliban. How could you say that, right? These are horrifying people. Uh, and the problem, of course, is, and I, I, I learned this as a politician, and I, I'm actually struggling with this problem now in communicating in social media and interviews. How do you both at the same time acknowledge that there are many things about the Taliban that are, to put it very mildly, deeply, deeply disturbing, and also say, and by the way, we're going to have to find a way to work with them? Because it sounds like these two things are totally contradictory. We haven't really found a way in our politics of, of resolving that problem. Right? Um, let, let me also just touch very quickly on a couple of other observations by David and by yourself. This question of starting at the easier places first, I believe it so strongly. I mean, we ran an NGO on the ground in Kabul for 15 years, which was very successful. But the point is that even in the easy places, right, working in Afghanistan is really hard. And, you know, I was trying to explain to people, I remember sitting with very grand US figures, you know, Secretary Clinton, Bester Holbrook, all these kind of people. And they were saying, well, why don't you just move your operation to rural uh, Helmand? Right? Run, run your institute in rural Helmand. And I was saying, you just don't get <laughs> just how many problems I face running a high quality project in Bamiyan or in Kabul right? or in Mazar. Right? If I put it in a situation in which literally you're under fire, in which people are being kidnapped and killed all the time, you're just not going to get anything. I mean, I, I remember the, you know, the famously one of the most sort of comical things of all was Diffid decided to fund a women's park in Lashkagar. Put a million dollars into creating this thing, which was supposed to be a wonderful place for, for families to go. And of course, pretty soon it was a deserted desert wasteland. When that money spent somewhere else in the country could have really made an impact. Mm. Um, 
But we somehow, and, and that of course is related to the point that we keep coming back to, which was we think in such black and white binary terms. So it's a very slick, easy argument. The problem is in the South. The problem is in Kandahar and Ashgabat. So that's where we need to create the jobs. That's where we need to create the activities. And these people in Central Afghanistan, well, they're very peaceful. So we don't need to do anything for them. Well, I mean, surprise, surprise, when the pressure starts 20 years later, those people in Central Afghanistan don't feel much gratitude towards the government who didn't reward them for being peaceful didn't take advantage of the fact that there were 4 million Hazara in Central Afghanistan who really wanted to better themselves, get into education, go things. But, you know, I was in Banyan in November. Barely changed from where it was 20 years ago. I mean, if you think about the transformation of most developing countries in 20 years, it's extraordinary right? how little it's changed. Okay, enough from me. Back to you. Just to, can I make a quick comment, Greg? The, the governor of Badakhshan, possibly a uh, apocryphally, is alleged to have told the German commander in 2006, so Badakhshan, for those who don't know, is a province in the far north, to have said, how many people do we have to kill around here to start getting some aid, right? Uh, in other words, you, you know, the Pashtuns shoot at you and you help them out. We're peaceful. We support the government. You give us nothing. What, how many people do we have to kill, you know? And look at Badakhshan now. Um, let's let's let, let's add to David. I'm flipping around, right? How yeah. many terrorists have we got to keep in our country to keep the international community interested? I mean, one of the reasons we left is that the international terrorist analysts have convinced themselves over the last few years that Afghanistan doesn't pose a significant international terrorist threat compared to Syria or whatever, right? So all the efforts that the Afghan government made and the special forces and a lot of intelligence work on trying to contain and control the international terrorist threat from Afghanistan is rewarded by us saying, oh, well, we don't need to worry about it anymore. So see you later, guys. We're out. And now guess what? Obviously, it's now considerably more likely we're going to get an international terrorist threat out of Afghanistan than if we'd remained. Let me pick up on this issue of intelligence, because I, I do think it's a fascinating one. One of the, uh, and it's a, it's a relationship between intelligence and political pig-headedness. Sorry, Rory. Uh, I don't include you in that description. But, um, you know, it seems when it came to Iraq that President Bush was going to go into Iraq, whatever the intelligence said, and it seems as if Biden was in is intent on, well, was now, intent on withdrawing from Afghanistan, no matter what the consequences were. It was just this, you know, we've got to go in or we've got to go out, and it, don't give me, don't, you know, don't confuse me with facts type of mindset. Do you think that there has been, and if so, why do you think there has been the sort of serial failure of intelligence in Iraq. Uh, think of Helmand Rory. I know you were outspoken at the time. Um, in the pace now of collapse and actually understanding how hollowed out the uh, Afghan army was and the rate of attrition and how this was unsupportable. Rory, you pointed out in terms of you know trying to do zoom zoom maintenance on helicopters is not a not exactly a a, a, a proper art form. Um, or is it? Is this a failure of intelligence or is this a failure of politicians to listen? And maybe uh, to you first, David. So when we say intelligence, it's important to understand that there is direction, collection, processing, analysis, you know, dissemination to policymakers. And then a policymaker has to act on uh, that material. And I think in terms of direction, collection, and processing, we've been actually pretty reasonably good in Afghanistan. Analysis has been an area of significant debate. There have been times at which people in um, 
Kabul or elsewhere have had very different views than analysts outside. Uh, there are famously a number of civilian analysts who called this right. I wasn't one of them, uh, but uh, when when military analysts didn't. Uh, so there's a big been a big debate on that. And then, of course, when you disseminate it to policymakers, they have to act on it. Let me give you one anecdote um, to, to illustrate that. In 2008, when I was working for the US State Department, there was a debate, it's, it's in the media, it's not secret, uh, between CIA uh, and DIA, uh, Central and Defense Intelligence Agencies on the one hand, and the intelligence folks in Kabul on the other. People in Kabul thought things were going dramatically better than the external analysts thought. And one of my tasks was to go and review the intelligence and look at what people were doing and get a feel for who was right and who was wrong. And I came away thinking that the people outside the country were much more accurate in their assessment. But worth pointing out, the reason for that was not that the guys in Kabul were being uh, manipulated or they were being overly rosy or trying to paint a false picture. It was that they'd only been there for one year. There are many cases they're on their first rotations. Um, they were young analysts who were getting their first spurs in, in the field. They didn't have anything to compare it with. By contrast, some of the CIA analysts have been doing Afghanistan for 20 years, and they could see the sort of change over time in a way that the tactical analysts couldn't. The other thing that was worth noting is that at that point, there were almost 2,000 intelligence analysts inside the wire at um, uh, the main ISAF bases in Kabul who never got out, right? They weren't able to get out. There's no, they were no, we, we think that intelligence analysts in country have better access. They often actually have worse access than people who aren't in country because they're not able to travel. Um, and in an age of social media and, um, you know, the ability to talk to people on WhatsApp and so on, open source field reporting is, is critical. Right now, there's a network of people, I'm one of them, who are, have self-generated, I know you are too, Greg, who've self-generated and are now working to get people out in a way that the governments have failed to do on the basis of just the connectivity and the ability to do that um, through uh, open source material. So the intelligence game has changed. Um, and I think that, you know, analysis has been controversial. The collection hasn't been a problem so much, but it's really then do politicians act on the intelligence they're given? And that's probably a question for Rory to answer. Yeah, Rory. I mean, I think, well, let, let, let me come in from, from two sides on this. Um, I, I think the first thing is that it's a, it's a bit of a mystery this, because of course it's true from the beginning of this engagement and it was true in Iraq too that politicians and generals said things which were completely insane about Afghanistan from the very beginning. So I, uh, one of the reasons Ashraf Ghani was often very angry with me is that I kept quoting his statement at the end of 2001 that every Afghan was committed to a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and rule of law. Right? And I just spent 30 days walking through rural Afghanistan, I couldn't think how I would translate that into Dari. I, I literally, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, how do I imagine Bushir Khan and Sanghi's art dealing with the notion of a gender-sensitive multi-ethnic center? Forget it. So the question at the root of this then is, are these guys cynical or are they naive? Right? Are they lying or do they just not know what they're talking about? And the same is true for all the generals who, from 2005 onwards, I have them all on record saying this is the decisive year, 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Every year was the decisive year. But of course, the truth of the matter is that 
these guys, politicians, generals, are not really in the business of describing reality. What they're actually in the business of is trying to influence people. They're selling a story. Generals are trying to pump up the morale of their soldiers. Politicians are trying to win support at home. And almost nothing of what they say is actually about Afghanistan. It's about us. It's about how to tell a story that keeps your soldiers fighting, keeps the money flowing in, keeps the voters on side. So you have to bake in from the very beginning that structurally, kind of fundamentally structurally, a uh, total lack of realism, that kind of crazy naive optimism is baked into the whole way that we think about these things. You, you couldn't write, for example, a, a report, if you look at the interim Afghan national development strategy, which was the core documents through which in different iterations, tens of billions of dollars flowed over the next few years, right? You read this document and it doesn't describe Afghanistan at all. I mean, it could be describing Botswana. In fact, I think quite a lot of it was sort of copied and pasted from a structured design for Botswana. Why does this happen? It happens because if you said in a formal public document, this is a very fragile, poor country, and with a lot of patience and a lot of luck, we hope this country in 20 or 30 years time will be slightly more prosperous, humane, and stable than it is today. And we hope it's gonna look a little bit more like Pakistan, a little bit less like the Congo, right? People go bananas. You know, we, we're not going to put troops into that. We're not going to put money into that. I'm not investing in that kind of project. Right? Our whole civilization is predicated on selling fairy stories. And that's one of the reasons clearly that Biden's got out. I mean, he's lurched from the crazy naive optimism of the 2000s to an equally naive pessimism, right? He's, he's gone from believing we can turn it into Switzerland to trying to pretend we achieve nothing and that we were making no difference at all, which is equally false, right? Um, let, let me just finish this thought and then I'll hand back to you. But the, the analogy that's been striking me recently is it would be like a very idealistic and naive person saying, I'm going to take a child into my home from a very damaged family with a very difficult background, take them in as a seven, eight year old. And I'm going to dedicate myself to turning their life around. And you put the years in and you begin to realize that it's difficult work. It's two steps forward. It's one step back. Some things are improving. Some things remain really tough and problematic. And at the end of 10 years, you just think, well, screw it. I haven't managed to turn this kid into the perfect little child that I dreamt of. So I'm throwing them out. I'm standing the door and I don't have anything more to do with them. They're not my responsibility. Uh, so to, to solve this problem, and I, I think you know, intelligence is somewhere there, but fundamentally it's the mindset that is perfectionist, either we achieve a perfect state or we have nothing to do with it. There's no moderate, sustainable, long-term investment. And that means that any intelligence you produce is immediately mashed up through optimism bias, through weird mirror imaging, through weird sorts of groupthink. I mean, all these kind of psychological tendencies, which basically mean that the senior people are going to only take on the information that's convenient to them and ignore anything that challenges their basic worldview. Thank you very much, both of you. Um, you'll remember, uh, perhaps, Rory and, and David, that one of my first responsibilities in the headquarters in 2006 was to turn the Afghan National Development Strategy into a campaign plan. And um, 
it was a, a job that defeated uh, and drew, drew it up as a schematic and it was a job that defeated all the paper I could virtually find in the headquarters. It was so complicated. I don't think that Switzerland, let alone Botswana, could have implemented it. It had everything in it and no capacity to be able to achieve any of it. Um, and, and that's a great failing on the part of the international community. I, I was struck by your comment uh, about um, believing that it's a complete failure. Um, one of the, when I was in Afghanistan last month, one of the journalists I spoke to from Tolo News, a, a great, great success story in terms of, 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 a, of a news agency, and that's a tremendous change in Afghanistan itself, just the spread of digital communications, the spread of news, and amongst many other changes, um, which we can refer to girls' education, uh, literacy, and so on. These are all very big social changes that the Taliban's going to find very hard to put back in a box again. I said to him, has the last 20 years, because of course the noose was tightening uh, when I was there very rapidly, I said, has it been a failure? And he said, no, it's incomplete. Uh, and, and I think it's a, it's a very, for me personally, a very good summary. Of course, the question is, how long does it take to complete something like that? And the answer is, well, you know, the US has been in Germany for 75 years. It's been in Korea for 70 years. These are long-term security questions which take a, a great deal of commitment. But we can, you can comment on that. I, I, I wanted to ask David, do you think, and this is for Rory as well, do you think the strategic failure was at the very beginning that nobody thought this thing through to the finish? That nobody really said, this is where we want to get to, these are the, these are the commitments we're going to make. It, so it became subject to short-termism on the one hand that Rory has alluded to. It became subject to personalities, became uh, influenced by institutional interests of donor agencies, but also institutional interests of NATO itself having to get involved to give itself a, a justification. Um, to what extent was this a, a failure of strategic thinking um, uh, right from the very outset, David? So uh, three quick comments um, on Korea, right? So Rory brought up Korea. The U.S. first went to Korea in 1945. 20 years or, 20, let's say, 21 years after that would have been 1966. In 1966, South Korea was a military dictatorship that had a GDP per capita lower than that of the Congo. We've had 28,500 troops in Korea, more than that, actually, for, for close on 50 years, right? It hasn't broken the bank. We, it's been sustainable. Does anybody think that if we were to pull all those troops out of Korea to, in the way that we've just done from Afghanistan, you wouldn't have a similarly catastrophic, um, you know, uh, outcome? So the inability to pull troops out doesn't mean it's a failure, right? And th that would be my second comment, which would be Malaya, right? The way that counterinsurgency works is not that you defeat the enemy, everything's fine, you have a big medal parade and you go home. What happens is you suppress the enemy to the point where the locals can handle them with minimal assistance or let's say sustainable assistance and then they handle them right now malaya the, the the emergency ended in 1960 but there was still an active insurgent component out on the ground in northern malaya when i was a young officer in 1989 but it wasn't a threat for that 30-year period to the malayan go malaysian government malaysian government was handling it perfectly well but by the way the five powers that a part of the five power defense arrangement still maintain an airbase and troops and support and frankly they still do to this day right so the mere notion that you you've 
you've got to leave otherwise you haven't won is is puerile, right? And no military analyst um, would would be caught dead making that statement if they know anything about irregular warfare. Um, so th those are the couple of points. But then I want to just point to something that I think Rory's probably got a view on as well, and it's about the allies. Allies largely went into Afghanistan, I think, in order to support the United States. And they did it to show themselves as credible coalition partners and as credible members and reliable members of the alliance. And they did it out of a goodwill sense to support the United States. The problem with that model, which we could sort of shorthand as alliance brownie points, right, as a war aim, the problem with that model is at dawn on the second day of the war, you've achieved your war aim, right? So what do you do now? And the only way that you can undermine the alliance credibility that you've achieved is to leave too early. And people have probably heard me use that this analogy before, but you don't want to be the first person to stop clapping at the Stalin speech, right? So all the allies are like, well, shit, we have to stay now until the Americans figure out how to get out of here. And so we all committed, we all committed to stay. All the allies wanted to make it work, but they just wanted to make it work so the Americans could figure out how to leave. The Americans didn't want to figure out how to leave, or they weren't able to for a variety of, of reasons. And I think that allies um, didn't really exercise the leverage that they probably should have in shaping the plan precisely because they framed it in terms of alliance commitment. Uh, there are some exceptions. The French did a very good job in imposing leverage. The Turks have done a good job. Um, I would argue the UK has done a pretty good job compared to many others. Uh, but too many of the allies were just there to be there. And if you're only there to be there, well, then, you know, um, you've got an institutional interest in, in, in not rocking the boat. Can I come in just quickly behind David on that? Can I, can um, I, can I absolutely, Rory, but I want to ask you a PS question to this, which you can address in your comment, which is, do you think that the UK should have lobbied hard against the US decision? And, 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 and how could uh, Prime Minister Johnson have pushed back against uh, President Biden? Well, so I think two things, I think they're related. I mean, what David says resonates so much. Uh, although the UK was the second largest troop contributor, it was incredibly frustrating trying to engage with the UK about counterinsurgency warfare strategy, because fundamentally in the end, this was a US strategy, which they were bolting into. And when, for example, the British ambassador, Sheriff Cooper Coles tried 2008-9 to question the strategy, he was fired, right? And he was replaced by a man who just basically became a cheerleader for the Americans. Uh, there was no real appetite for full independent analysis, trying to question whether this whole thing made sense because we, we were a junior partner. 90% of this was American, always. That then leads on to where we are more recently. So the presence on the ground by the beginning of this year was 2,500 troops and some planes. So theoretically, it should have been possible for the UK and other NATO countries to take up some of that burden. Uh, the UK boasts of spending more than 2% of its GDP on defense and being a major military power. Right. 2,500 is eminently manageable or should be with the kind of defense budget that we have. The Turks had already said they were gonna stay. If the UK as the second largest military contributor had come in clearly and early enough I think we could have persuaded others, French, Germans, certainly Australians and others to come along with us. 
And we could have had a conversation with the US. We could have said to Biden, OK, you want to get your boys home, but we need certain types of enablers and support to make this transition work. Right? Could have kept some of their command and control structures. Goodness knows, we could have kept their contractors. Kept the planes running without relying on Zoom. Kept Bagram. Right, could have kept Bagram going, yeah. Um, so the US Defense Secretary claims that he tried. I don't think they tried very hard. And the reason they didn't try very hard is exactly for the reasons that David uh, laid out. But but the, the consequence of this is this is an incredible humiliation that Biden has inflicted. Not just the humiliation of betrayal of all the Afghans that work with us, but an immense humiliation of these NATO allies. Because we're left carrying the responsibility in the canvas. We're left humiliated in front of our publics, but he didn't really consult us. He made no attempt to think through a transition, didn't concur to him that we might stay when he left. And in fact, actually, as Jake Sullivan revealed in the press conference yesterday, uh, he hadn't made any attempt to call any NATO leader until this morning. I said, Kabul falls, five days, President of the United States isn't even bothered to pick up the phone to anyone. And that gives you a pretty good idea of the kind of relationship that's going on here. Rory, let me pick up on that theme. I know you have a time constraint, but I do want to hear two two answers from you if you can, um, and we'll deal with them in fairly a quick sequence. The first is, is what do you think the damage to, you've spoken about the damage within the alliance, uh, and certainly this indicates the the extent of the lack of leverage of other NATO allies on the United States. And, the, and one of the rationales for this operation was always that it's better to be with the United States because you could have leverage over them. Well, as it turned out, in fact, no, you don't have any leverage over them, uh, uh, or so it would appear. What do you think is the the danger to, or, or the damage to the West in terms of its moral authority, given that it's essentially let down uh, its its uh, its obligation to the Afghan people, and, and what do you think are the, going to be the geopolitical implications of this, particularly, and I think here of Russia and China, and others that will take advantage of the vacuum that's being created? Not necessarily a physical vacuum; that's one thing, but a a political and ideological vacuum. Well, I think there are, there are two dimensions. This one is, of course, that tragically and traditionally. Uh, countries have often let down their allies in shocking ways, right? We have to be honest about this. This isn't the first time that people have been betrayed. Uh, the British worked very closely, for example, with Karen and Kachin fighters to fight the Japanese and then handed them over against their wishes to a Burmese government that suppressed them brutally for seven years. Uh, and there were some pretty horrifying things at the end of the Second World War where we betrayed whole countries to the Soviet Union to try to get something. But, uh, it is the case that by doing this again and so publicly, and this is probably the worst betrayal I can think of since the end of the Second World War, right? I, it's, I'm struggling to come up with something quite so unforced and callous. Right? We tried to hang on in South Vietnam at huge cost for a long time. That was not an easy departure. Um, and the consequence of this is that it allows autocratic regimes to distinguish themselves from us by presenting themselves as more long-term patient allies. Now, that doesn't mean they always are, but that's going to be what China and Russia will try to suggest to the world. Iran will try to suggest to the world. Because there is a good narrative there that democracies suffer from an attention deficit disorder, that we can't really do foreign policy because every few years we have a new election, we get a new president in. 
The US through the Cold War, and even in the 1990s and 2000s, managed to insulate itself a little bit against that because there was a very, very highly developed US defense, intelligence, foreign policy establishment, largely detached from domestic politics and had huge resources, CIA stations all over the world, bases all over the world that were able to keep relationships going over decades. Donald Trump really began to break this and Biden has really exposed the fragility of this whole system uh, in a brutal way. And that, that's what really worries me. And I think that it's going to be very difficult now. Uh, Britain going into another relationship with the United States now goes in in a much more fragile and paranoid way than they would have done 10 years ago. I saw this first actually in relation to Crimea. I was in the National Security Council when Obama went and Donald Trump came in and suddenly Britain was left asking itself, is this entire policy that we've signed up to and advocated for in Ukraine and Crimea one that we Britain believe in or were we just going along with the United States in order to do the Stalin clapping? And What do we do if Trump suddenly uh, goes 180 degrees round on this? Do we, do we go with him? Do we go against him? We don't, don't know, right? And this is going to become worse and worse and it's becoming worse and worse at a time when generally the reputation of our liberal democracies is much lower than it was in the 90s. The growth of democracies has stopped and has begun to go backwards. Populism is rising around the world. The British economy, which was larger than China's as recently as 2005, the Chinese economy is now seven times larger than ours. I mean, we're entering a very different world. And what Biden has done is particularly destructive in that context. Could I chime in briefly, Greg, do you mind? Absolutely. And then I'm going to come back to Rory for a last question before he has to take his taxi. Yeah. So just very quickly that I think I fully agree with all of that. I would just add one more geopolitical effect. This is going to extend the war on terror, right? It might be by a decade or more. What we saw after the fall of the almost fall of the Iraqi government and the declaration of the caliphate was a massive morale boost for jihadists worldwide. And, you know, almost seven years of extended significant terrorism threat. Even if the Taliban stick to their commitment and don't launch attacks from Afghanistan, the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, defeating the world's you know, most important superpower after 20 years is going to be a huge morale boost for everybody. And we're going to see a renewal of jihadist activity worldwide. Just when we thought we were getting out of 20 years of the war on terrorism, we've probably just bought ourselves another decade by doing this. That's a great segue, uh, Dave, to to uh, a last question for Rory, which uh, which of course you can comment on as well. Which is is really what's the prognosis now? Um, uh, and you know, is there is there a likelihood of and there's of course a danger in making any prognosis, but is is there a likelihood of of, of civil war returning to Afghanistan uh, as at the end of the the uh, Mujahideen slash Soviet phase at the end of the 1980s. I saw uh, pictures on social media today of uh, Ahmed Massoud uh, um, back in the Panjshir Valley, uh, Northern Alliance flags uh, fluttering. I spoke to Ahmed Massoud last month in, in Kabul, and he was deeply frustrated about um, the, the lack of communication between himself and the government, between his people and the government and, and, and the fact that there was very little co uh, coordination and consultation going on. Are we likely to see a return to those uh, dark days of the 1990s? And then 
very important and related to that is is what should the West now be concentrating on? So I think Afghanistan is going into a dark phase. Um, the Taliban controls most of the country, and most Afghans appear to have intuitively decided that although most of them do not want to live under Taliban rule, that um, that was preferable to trying to put up a suicidal fight where they thought they would, would be killed for nothing. Um, the Panjshir Valley is holding out, but we need to think quite seriously before we start encouraging Afghans to rise up against the Taliban government, because there's a real danger of what happened in southern Iraq, of course, which is that people rise up and are massacred, because I don't think there's any appetite from the US or others to provide significant support for Afghans trying to do that. Um, and and th this is risky, because those guys in the Panjshir will, of course, be reaching out desperately to allies looking for some degree of support to keep them going. And some intelligence agencies and others will be tempted to fund, fund them doing that. But, but we need to think quite seriously about what the consequences of that are. Um, I, I don't have an easy answer, but it, it doesn't look good to me. The second thing is your question about what the West should do. Um, this has now gone beyond a military situation into a humanitarian development catastrophe and a political catastrophe. So from a humanitarian development point of view, there are now millions of Afghans in really big trouble. And predominantly across the country, clinics are shut, many of them very dependent on female doctors and nurses who are reluctant to go to work. The governmental systems are currently paralyzed because the Taliban, whatever their merits, uh, are not great government administrators and many civil servants are a bit reluctant to go back to work at the moment. I mean, remember Afghanistan at the end of 2001, it was not a very governed place, right? There were, the Taliban sat around in a few empty offices and there were a few rusty filing cabinets, but most of central Afghanistan, there wasn't anything that you could really recognize as a state. Um, so that's going to mean people will be hungry. That's going to mean a lot of people not going to school. That's going to mean a lot of people not getting health care. I would counsel the West against imposing immediate sanctions on the Taliban, particularly general sanctions that stop development assistance, humanitarian assistance. They're going to hurt millions of ordinary Afghans, create even more of a hellish situation on the ground, and the Taliban will just shrug it off. I mean, they've had a pretty tough life for 20 years. They don't give a monkey's about being sanctioned. They've effectively been sanctioned for 20 years, right? Um, so that's the first thing. Please do not rush to start saying all USAID programs and funding for Save the Children, UNICEF, UNDP, cease tomorrow, right? That would be awful. And the second thing is, we need to find some way of trying to reach out to the Taliban, very realistically, very cynically, appreciating that the likelihood is that these people are not people that we can do business with, because after all, they've just devoted 20 years of their life to try to destroy everything we've created, right? So there's very good reasons to be very doubtful about how far we can get. But for what it's worth, at the moment, they feel secure, they are have chosen to put out a pretty optimistic, moderate message. They're keeping security pretty well in Kabul. Um, so there is an outside chance. I say a small chance, but an outside chance that you can have some kind of conversation with them and try to stop things going worse, prevent them becoming a terrorist safe haven, try to set some basic conditions on how you get female health workers back, stop them causing huge problems in the region. And we have to have the confidence to try to do that, because if we don't do that, Quite quickly, this is going to become an extremely paranoid regime, worried that people are going to topple them, and then all kinds of further horror is going to unravel. Um, I'm very, very sorry I'm leaving you. I, I just want to say a huge thank you, and 
uh, what a privilege it's been to be with you. And and um, for people listening, I mean, Brent has found fantastic, David's fantastic. And also worth hearing more from Greg if he gives you a second before he leaves, because he was in Kabul just four weeks ago and we haven't heard enough from him. But thank you so much again for having me. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, Rory. Only uh, a pleasure as ever. Um, and thank you very much for squeezing us into uh, an extremely hectic schedule. Thank you. Um, Dave, do you want, would you like to uh, pick up on, on some of those questions about uh, the prognosis and, and, and what should the West be concentrating on? And then I want to, to ask you to end with some thinking on what the uh, collapse of the Afghan government and going back to your rise of jihadism question, what this means for countries facing similar circumstances, particularly those in the Sahel. Uh, we think of Mozambique. Uh, in terms of the uh, uh, Islamist insurgency in the north of Mozambique. What do you think the impact of this is going to be? And what should African governments be taking out of the failure of Kabul and the collapse of Kabul for their own strategies? Yeah, that's a great set of questions. Um, so just, to, I mean, people probably know that only a few, a few months ago I said in writing that it would be a stretch to imagine the, the Taliban taking Kabul anytime soon, right? So I don't know if there's a prognosticator's anonymous, but I think I'm going to try to wean myself off of prognostications because I obviously suck at that. Um, I'll just say the reason that I thought it was unlikely was that I could not believe that the international community would just abandon the Afghans the way that we have, you know, not one airstrike, not one word of support, not any assistance. Um, President Biden coming out and saying, on Saturday, hey, it's all done, and then Ashraf Ghani leaving and the Afghan army collapsing as a result of that was all things that I just never believed on moral grounds that we would ever be capable of doing. So I obviously don't understand the moral universe of a lot of lot of folks that, that made these calls, so I'm going to get out of the prognostication business for the moment. Um, I'll just say, though, that what's happening now suggests that we are already in a civil war, as Rory said, uh, protests in Jalalabad and coast overnight, Taliban shooting into the crowds and killing people, people protesting uh, in uh, in those cities, uh, up in the Panjshir Valley, not only the Masuds, but the first vice president, Amrullah Saleh, who has now noted that the Afghan constitution says that when the president flees, the first vice president takes over as caretaker president. And he's now rallying political allies and saying, I am the legitimate president of Afghanistan come to me and we're going to fight um, this, uh, this oppressive regime. So we're already in a civil war. Um, and I think that Rory's point is exactly on the money. Uh, we need to make a decision about whether it's going to be better or worse than, uh, you know, to support op opponents of the Taliban uh, or, or to simply try to get the Taliban to moderate their behavior. Since it's just you and me and no one's listening, I'll say this without fear of being repeated. Uh, I actually believe the Russians have taken a rather good approach here. And I, I know you'd be astounded to hear me say that, but the Russians have said, we're deciding whether to recognize the Taliban and whether to um, uh, assist the government. And their behavior over the next few weeks is going to decide um, our course of action. I think that's a very smart way to play it, right, to apply that leverage. I see the Chinese have effectively sort of de facto recognized the Taliban already and are talking about tying them into some Belt and Road projects that link to Iran and to Pakistan. So there's some economic leverage there. And I think we need to think about this 
unfortunately, less as a moral question and more as a question of leverage at this point. And how do we generate the, the maximum leverage to try to, you know, mitigate this self-inflicted uh, disaster that we're we're dealing with? Um, so going forward, I, I I think that would be my recommendation right now of, of how we should think about this. We should not immediately write off the Taliban, but we should understand that, as, as Rory said, there's deeply disturbing elements here, and we should um, figure out how we can apply leverage to um, to to prevent some of those horrific excesses that we saw last time around. And final comment for me would be, this is not the Afghanistan that the Taliban um, were kicked out of in 2001 or the Afghanistan that they dominated in 1996. It's much more developed. It's had trillions of dollars of investment. Um, the society is different. 65% of, of Afghans are young enough that they don't really remember the Taliban government. It's a much more urbanized and commercial and educated uh, society. The Taliban also are different. The Taliban uh, old leaders are still uh, in figurehead positions, but many of the key players are younger. That doesn't make them better in a, in a moral sense, but they're certainly different. And I think that even the Taliban recognize that they can't run this thing like they did in the 1990s. I mean, they had a conference yesterday where they talked about holding an, uh, an international investment uh, symposium and trying to get international aid and assistance and direct foreign investment. You know, this is the Taliban, right? So... You know, I think we have to give them the chance to change while being extremely skeptical um, and holding our ability in reserve to react if they if they don't. And that, that's all about, you know, achieving leverage. Thank you very much, David. I know that our time is up. It's been a, a incredible discussion with two of the most uh, uh, well-informed and nuanced and uh, uh, strategic thinking of the commentators out there. And, and always a great pleasure to, to hear your views. Uh, thank you very much to the Daily Maverick and the Naaman Stifting uh, for supporting this webinar series. I, I think as a as a child of the Cold War who watched the scenes of the evacuation of South Vietnam and read about it in the newspaper rather than watched it, but have since watched it on YouTube, I just never imagined that those scenes would happen again in my lifetime uh, to see the 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 pitiful uh, uh, actions of people clinging onto airplanes and falling from the sky as a consequence of that. But there we are. And I, I think this, what this points out is, is a, a dramatic failure of politics, as I said during the webinar, uh, a failure to hold politicians to account. But I too would like to end on the positive note that David has mentioned. Is, is it, we'll, we will see how this shakes out over the next uh, weeks and months. And perhaps it's a, a subject that subject that's worthy of a repeat discussion when we when we can assess slightly clearer once the dust has settled. Uh, but thank you again, David. Thank you very much, the Daily Maverick, and thank you everybody, the several thousand of you who signed into this uh, really interesting webinar. Good afternoon and goodbye. Thanks. As Dr. David Kokalin asked, how do we generate the maximum leverage to mitigate this self-inflicted disaster? That's definitely one to think about. Thanks so much for listening to this webinar. For the write-up of the webinar, please do visit the Brentus Foundation webpage at www.thebrentusfoundation.org and check out our latest news section. If you'd like to share your thoughts or comments, please do tweet at us on Twitter or visit our Facebook page to do so. Thanks so much for listening and have a good day.